Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of August 11th, 2014. On this week's show, we'll be joined by Motorsport.com Editor-in-Chief Stephen Cole-Smith to talk about the tragic death of sprint car driver Kevin Ward Jr. and whether Tony Stewart should be held responsible. Grantland's Shane Ryan will also be here to talk about Rory McIlroy's victory in the PGA Championship and McIlroy's emerging status as golf's latest superstar. Finally, we'll talk about last week's big NCAA news with The New York Times' Mark Tracy, who will help us assess what's next for college sports and the aftermath of Division I's super conference split and the anti-NCAA ruling in the Ed O'Bannon licensing case. And in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we'll talk about Deion Sanders' terrible-seeming charter school, Prime Prep Academy, and whether sports-based schools will ever take off in the USA. It is very giving of you to use seeming in there. <laughs> <laughs> Allegedly terrible. Yeah. Uh, Stefan Fats is out today competing in the National Scrabble Championship, as he has wont to do. Joining me for today's guest Apalooza is Mike Pesca, the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist, with Mike Pesca. Hello, Mike. Hi, I'm Mike Pasca. Uh, we cannot replace Stefan with just one human. We went with f- as many humans as we can muster. It's the Billy Bean uh, platoon outfield. We traded Cespedes, but, you know, maybe we'll get a little Sam Fold in there. Maybe we'll get a little Johnny Gomes. Maybe we'll get a little Mark Tracy of the New York Times. But a little bit counter to that philosophy, I'm going to say I like one interview on the gist better than two interviews. Actually, right. actually here's what I like. Mm-hmm. I like when you mix up the format. I like sometimes I like the one, sometimes I like the two, but I did enjoy the longer interviews on the show last week. I think the longer interviews that were good were good, but some <laughs> of the short interviews that were good were good too. Some of the bad interviews that were long were less good, as well as the bad interviews that were short not being that good. Although a bad short interview for many reasons is better than a bad long interview. Um, I think you're right on all points. I think that uh, you have a command of the material, a command yeah. of the show. You, yeah. you seem to know that good things are good and bad things are yeah. bad. We like to give them a star, then multiply by time, and then have an overall rating. This is what we call the I-score. 
Our I scores are then further formulated, <laughs> marked against the omega curve. Time is given for war and ERA plus, and then park effects, all that stuff. And then we figure out how to best construct the show. And that's why you decide Elizabeth Gilbert. That's 20 minutes. <laughs> we have a live show. Um, Stefan will be there, hopefully. Somebody can let him know that we have this live show. Or maybe Mark Tracy for the New York Times will show up. Maybe Deion Sanders will be there. October 8th at Galapagos Art Space in Brooklyn. It's part of New York Super Week, which is an extension of Comic-Con. Maybe some of the Avengers will be there. Who knows? Slate.com slash hang up Super Week. You get 30% off on a ticket, a $20 ticket. If you're a uh, Slate Plus member, that is slate.com slash hang up Super Week. On Saturday night in Canandaigua, New York, Tony Stewart got behind the wheel of a sprint car on a half-mile dirt track as part of the Empire Super Sprints series. Stewart has won NASCAR's championship three times, but he still does this sort of thing regularly, racing in minor league venues and minor league races, seemingly just for the love of the sport. All of this would have gone pretty much unnoticed if not for the tragic events that played out in less than 30 seconds. First, Stewart's car got tangled up with that of 20-year-old driver Kevin Ward Jr. as they were rounding turn two, and Ward's vehicle went crashing into the wall. Ward, who apparently believed that Stewart caused the wreck, went onto the track as the race continued under caution, with other cars continuing to buzz around. Ward appeared to point his finger in Stewart's direction before getting clipped and thrown into the air by Stewart's car as it came back around the track. The 20-year-old Ward was killed, pronounced dead on Saturday night. The Ontario County New York Sheriff has said that criminal charges could still be levied against Stewart, though there's no evidence right now to support the idea that Stewart intended to hit Ward, according to the sheriff. Tyler Graves, a sprint car driver and Ward's friend who saw the crash from trackside, says he does not believe that. He says that Stewart did see Ward and that he needs to be put in prison for life. Writing for Motorsport.com, Stephen Cole Smith writes that the idea that Stewart accelerated trying to hit Ward is beyond the pale. Joining us now is Stephen Cole Smith, editor-in-chief of motorsport.com. Thank you for being here. Thanks for inviting me, guys. Sure. And let's take this step by step because I think for most of us, um, sprint car racing is not something we're familiar with. It is something that you have done. You've driven these cars before. Um, they're unusual looking. They're not like stock cars and NASCAR. So what do we need to know about these vehicles? Well, if you know Tony Stewart's background, this is the history of Tony Stewart. This is where he came from growing up in Indiana. Dirt tracks, short tracks. He loves the sport. He loves the power. We in the business call it power-to-weight ratio. How much power do you have compared to how heavy the car is? The car Tony Stewart drives on Sundays has maybe 900 horsepower. It weighs 4,000 pounds. The car he was racing Saturday night has 830 horsepower, weighs about 1,500 pounds. Uh, tremendous fast, tremendously tough to drive, and Tony has said repeatedly that if he can win a sprint car race against guys that do it regularly, he's really done something. He's done something to him that's as important and as impressive and as, as satisfying as winning a NASCAR race. So the guy goes back to it whenever he can. At least he does now. He Last year, if you remember, almost exactly a year ago, he was in a sprint car race in exactly a car like this, broke his leg in two places and was out for the 
rest of the year and took a lot of criticism because it is Stuart Haas racing. There are guys like uh, Kevin Harvick, uh, Kurt Busch, Danica Patrick. All these people drive for Tony Stewart and his team. His team personally missed the chase for the championship because he couldn't drive anymore. And I can't remember, I I remember writing about it, but there was a, a, a baseball player who tried pitching for a couple of weeks and threw his arm out and basically run his career. It was kind of the same thing. People were saying, why is this guy racing sprint cars when he has a multi-million dollar industry resting on his shoulders? He basically blew that criticism off, said, sprint car racing is what I enjoy. He was back into it. He'd only done it for a couple of weeks. He was his old Tony, his old self. And then this happens. I can only imagine what he's going through. Of course, it can't compare to what Kevin Ward's family is going through, but I got to think Tony Stewart is just devastated. Well, this story has a lot of elements of a thing that people have been doing that in retrospect and in light of a tragedy uh, makes other people say, well, why were you doing that? Sometimes it's legit and sometimes it's not. You do have the fact that Tony Stewart's in this race at all. You just explained what his motivations are. But then you have the idea of uh, this driver coming out onto the track, waving his finger. Cars were going at least 40 miles an hour. For those of us who don't really follow racing, it seems an insane thing to do. And yet when you read about the history of the sport, it happens kind of often. I think it's legitimate to question, obviously it's legitimate to question the wisdom of that, but is it the sort of thing that, you know, in racing, if there was no tragedy, people wouldn't be saying, I can't believe that this guy even would come out onto the track? I don't think there's any question that uh, what Kevin Ward did was stupid. Tony Stewart never hit him, as far as I can tell. He just ran him high into the turn. I think a 20-year-old kid who's won four times saw that as him being bullied by a big NASCAR star and got out and wanted to shake his fist at Tony Stewart, which might be more amazing if Tony Stewart had not done that so many times himself. Repeatedly, Tony, who is a hothead, has gotten out of his car. Uh, One very famous case at Bristol. He threw his helmet at Matt Kenseth. But traditionally, NASCAR cars are very big cars. They race under very bright conditions. Even at night, they're well lit. You really can't hide, whereas Kevin Ward got out in a fairly dark track. I've been to Canandaigua. Very dark dirt. He was in a black car in a black suit with a black helmet. You can look at these cars and tell the visibility is terrible. Not only do you have a helmet on, but you've got a Hans device. You've got what they call a balaclava, which is a fireproof thing that, that's sort of like a ski mask. Then you've got this huge wing that almost uh, sits down like a roof on the car that you have to kind of peek around. So I cannot imagine that Tony Stewart had any idea that Kevin Ward was going to come down and, and shake his fist at him because I don't think uh, Tony Stewart even knew that he had crashed. He was already so far beyond Kevin Ward's car when Kevin hit the wall, and it was a minor hit. It only uh, wrinkled up his right rear tire and wheel. The car probably could have continued had he taking it to the pits. There's no question that Kevin Ward has some culpability in this, but what really upsets me is, uh, you know, there's over a thousand comments on my column, and fully 30 to 40 percent of the people who are commenting are are calling Tony Stewart a murderer. They're saying that they threw the car sideways to try to hit Kevin Ward at at worst, at best, he was trying to scare him. I just cannot imagine. I mean, if you look at the, the huge Hoosier right rear tire on these cars, it is a weapon. It's enormous. 
enormous. If you look at motorsport.com right now, I've got a picture of Kevin Ward in his car. You can see that huge rear tire. Tony had one just like it. I mean, it's massive. There's no tire that size that's on any kind of street car you've ever seen. I just can't imagine Tony Stewart did that. But I can also tell you, having driven this car, they're really bizarre handling cars, especially at low speeds. That huge wing on top creates downforce, pushes a car down onto the dirt. The steering wheel really doesn't do a lot. It just kind of aims the car. You steer the car based on throttle. Uh, the right rear tire is much larger than the left rear tire. These cars don't even go straight unless you turn to the right. They're made to turn to the left. The fact that Tony Stewart obviously saw Kevin at the very last second, I think he tried to turn away from him. The idea that he tried to hit him, yeah, Tony's been in a fist fight or two, but it's always been with somebody that's really made him annoyed, including a promoter down in Australia that Tony clobbered with a helmet at one time and, and was arrested. The idea that the 20-year-old kid that Tony didn't even know that he had gotten close to, that he would try to threaten him, that he would try to cause him harm, uh, is just not possible. So speaking of Kevin Ward Jr., I think that he's kind of getting lost a bit in the coverage here and everyone talking about Tony Stewart, his potential culpability, why he was racing there. He has been on this Empire Super Sprint series for five years, even being just 20 years old. He started racing go-karts at age four on dirt tracks. Can you tell us sort of is that kind of a common story? Um, Is he, um, you know, somebody who you would find on a dirt track in Canandaigua on oh, Saturday yeah. night. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there are several sanctioning bodies for sprint cars. The biggest is the World of Outlaws. They happen to be racing in Knoxville, Iowa, Saturday night in the largest sprint car race of the year. And uh, Donnie Schatz wanted who actually drives for Tony Stewart. Tony owns three sprint car teams. If you consider that the major league, then the Empire Super Sprints, there's probably A or Triple A baseball. They race smaller engines, 360 cubic inch engines, that are uh, steel blocks as opposed to aluminum. So they're a little bit cheaper. Uh, uh, the car that Kevin Ward and Tony were driving is probably a fifty dollars or $60,000 car, about half of what a uh, real-world of outlaw sprint car would run. Kevin Ward had a big trailer that was towed behind a truck. Typically, you're looking at $100,000 to be able to race one of these cars. So, you know, while it's grassroots, there's grassroots for sprint cars and there's grassroots for guys that are out there in those Chevrolet Cavaliers just trying to make laps and jump cars. Kevin Ward obviously was very good. He's been doing this for a long time. He's won four of these races. To be only 20, he's a contender. Tony Stewart started 12th in this race. Kevin started 6th. He was actually out of Tony Stewart. So uh, this is a kid that, with the right brakes down the line, we could have heard of as a professional driver if he wants to. But you, you guys would be amazed at how many really, really good drivers never really want to leave home. They've got family concerns. They've got businesses. They just want to race locally. The Empire Super Sprints races in New York, races up into Canada. It's a good, solid series that races maybe 15, 20 times a year. And this was, I think, their second time at Canandaigua Speedway. So I think Kevin Ward is very, very typical of the racers that are out there. And as you mentioned, it's a shame that, that he's getting lost in this, he and his family. You know, I, I, I'm so conflicted about auto racing. I've been a fan. I've grown up on it. I've seen in person six or seven people get killed. And every time I'm conflicted about wondering why in the hell I support and and cheer for a sport that kills people, that kills children, that takes away fathers and sons and daughters and aunts and uncles. But I keep coming back to it, and my guess is that most of the people at Canandaigua Speedway Saturday night will be back this Wednesday for another race. 
So in Josh's intro, he quoted Tyler Graves, and I think that this quote, Tyler Graves is the sprint car racer and a friend of Ward's, and that maybe colored his perception, but I think this quote drove a lot of those comments with people essentially calling Tony a murderer. Of course, what also drove those comments was the fact that, you know, in our society, making such a comment is pretty cheap, and people don't see the difference between saying, hey, this guy's a murderer, and hey, you should have left the pitcher in in the sixth. Anyway, if you go through the quote, you seem to contradict almost all the facts that Graves asserts. He starts by saying, I know Tony could see him. I know who, how you can see out of these cars. Okay, so let's stop right there. I know you can see out of these cars. You talked about how visibility is terrible. And then he says, when Tony got close to him, he hit the throttle. When you hit a throttle on a sprint car, the car set sideways. It set sideways. The right rear tire hit Kevin. So he seems to be saying that if you know how these cars work, that hitting the throttle is going to put the car into where Kevin was saying, and you add that up with he could see him. I mean, what Graves is saying, he seems to be implying that uh, Tony Stewart had a lot of agency in this matter. Who Do you know about Tyler Graves? Do you know never heard why of him. he might have said this? Um, no, never heard of him, and I respectfully disagree. And I think uh, he is basing what he said. And the, the grandstands, if you look at this video I'm about to mention, the grandstands are on the far side of where this happened. You know, it's a fairly dark track. It was a long way off. But there is a video that was shot from the stands that shows the whole incident. And a lot of people, I mean a lot of people, are basing their assumptions on what that video shows. It, it shows him getting out of the car. It shows him coming down. It shows him almost getting hit by the car in front of him. And then you sort of see him, if not approaching, at least leaning toward Tony Stewart's car. Tony was probably going 40, 45 miles an hour, even under a caution flag. Sprint cars don't have starters. They have to be pushed to be started. And if you go slower than 40, even maybe 30 miles an hour, the cars will stall and have to be restarted. So even when you're under caution, you have to stay at a fairly good clip going around the track. I disagree that there's absolutely a given that Tony Stewart was able to see Kevin coming. Your visibility in sprint cars is directly straight ahead. There's very little visibility off to the right or to the left. There are no mirrors. You're just kind of guessing at what's there. If Kevin Ward is coming from a 90-degree angle down to the right, I'm stunned that anybody would say that it's mandatory that that Tony would be able to see him. Well, you mentioned before that Tony Stewart does this as kind of uh, an avocation that he's usually in NASCAR. I'm not saying, obviously, that, you know, this means that Stewart did this intentionally or, you know, that he's even culpable at this point. But could there be criticism that he is not practicing in these cars every week like some other people on this circuit? And so in a situation that could potentially be hazardous. He just might not be in practice. Like that is a that is a great question. And for ninety nine percent of the racers out there, I would say you're absolutely on target. For Tony Stewart, the guy has more natural talent when it comes to these short tracks than anybody I've ever seen. He has said that the winged sprint cars like this, back in Indiana, cars don't have those huge wings on top. It's just a different kind of racing. But he says winged sprint cars has been the hardest type of car. And this is a guy that's that's won the IndyCar championship. He's raced everything. He was winning at the 24 hours of Daytona sports cars when his car broke down. He's one of the most versatile racers ever, but he says the biggest challenge for him is these winged sprint cars. But the fact that he was hurt, stayed out for 
almost a year, two weeks short of a year, and came back and won the first night back, I think suggests that there's a level of, of competence, a level of uh, muscle memory that Tony Stewart has that I think, like I said, your question is absolutely on target for 99% of the people for Tony Stewart. I'd say I don't think anybody who knows him or has seen him drive would question whether or not any rust on his ability might have caused this. Stephen Colesmith is the editor-in-chief of Motorsport.com. Thank you so much for being with us on the show today. I appreciate it, and I wish it was under happier circumstances, guys. It must be said that this year's golf majors were kind of a snooze, a bit like watching paint dry or watching the grass grow or watching people play golf. But the PGA Championship at Valhalla Country Club was a reminder that sometimes you get to hang out in a really sumptuous great hall with the Norse god Odin, and sometimes a major tournament can be a closely contested test of skill and will that's one with fantastic shot making by a player who looks poised to become an all-time great after beating out Phil Mickelson, Ricky Fowler, and Henrik Stinson in what I'm calling the duel in the sunset. Rory McIlroy has won two major championships in a row and now has four majors at the age of 25. Grantland's Shane Ryan was at Louisville's Valhalla Country Club with Rory and Odin, and he's working on a book about golf's rising stars that is tentatively called Slaying the Tiger, although I'm told that we can suggest alternatives if we're moved to do so. Shane, thanks for being with us. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. And even if you don't have alternative suggestions, if you'd just like to insult the one we've already chosen, that's that's totally fine as well. What do you think, Well, Mike? you should go for all, you should go for all uh, generations. So it could be bear baiting the bear, defuzzing the zeller. <laughs> <laughs> I like bear baiting the bear. Yeah, that's, I, I do think you're right. I think we really need to nab those old people. Mm-hmm. Uh, who probably, let's be honest, will be the only people buying the book. So Being mean, uh, yeah. being mean I, to I Sam Sneed. That. I got them all. <laughs> <laughs> so good. I think old Tom Morris. We need to. Uh, we need to get him too. I think uh, 150 year old Scottish people. We don't want to alienate them. <laughs> um, so there was uh, something for all generations in that final round. You had the uh, veteran Mickelson. You had the young guys uh, Fowler and McElroy. You were um, there. You watched that great final round. What stood out to you most? Yeah, I think you're right. I think Phil Mickelson at a certain point felt like uh, a last remnant of the old guard in a year where these young guys have really, you know, fortunately for me, because this is the premise of my book, they've really kind of been taking over, winning most of the big tournaments, if not all. And, uh, yeah, it was it was really fun to watch Phil and Ricky. They played together in the second-to-last pairing, and, uh, you know, they, they have great chemistry. They may end up playing together at the Ryder Cup in September, uh, and they really just fed off each other and were making birdie after birdie. And that was really exciting, and the crowd was going nuts. The crowd in Kentucky was excellent. So that was really fun to watch. And then I think that reached a peak about hole number 10 and number 11, and then the Sunday pressure kind of settled in on them, and Rory McIlroy, just after a rough start, just took over. Uh, and it was, really, you know, it was really cool watching him, too. It was just an excellent final round because you had this initial surge, and then you had the guy, in my opinion, who was the greatest golfer in the world, taking over at the end and just and just kind of showing that he – really does stand a chance to become an icon like Tiger Woods or Jack Nicklaus or guys like that. So, yeah, it's just a, just a pleasure all around. And, and like you said earlier, we had some pretty dull major Sundays this year. So it was nice to get one kind of epic one in before the year ends. 
Right. And this wasn't just epic because it was close in a shootout. Conditions, which contributed to the shootout atmosphere, conditions made it so that the comebacks could roar back. But it was just so interesting to see it played in the gloaming. And then really, I mean, by it ended at 843. It was dark. It was just flat out dark by the end. And I know that uh, I know that Rory said, oh, I couldn't trust my depth perception here or there. I know as viewers, it greatly affects us because it's different than golf looks. How greatly do you think the darkness actually affects the players? You know, it was interesting. I, I think Rory, when he hit his tee shot on 18, didn't know where it went. He, you know, he'd tell a little bit that it went right, but there's water along the right side of that hole. And so, you know, the only effect might kind of come after the fact, you know, just not knowing where the ball is and... I think David Faraday eventually told him where it was as he was walking down the fairway. But the only way it could really affect you, I think, off the tee or from the fairway is if there's that little bit of uncertainty that not knowing where it's going to land somehow gets in your head. But when you're on the green, I think it would have the biggest effect just because it makes it harder to see all the contours and to kind of take the whole thing in. You know, most golfers have a very kind of holistic process when they're putting. So it's not like... You know, they could walk the whole length of the putt, you know, up close uh, and, and kind of see all the breaks. They would, they kind of have to see the, the whole impression, and I think that, that does become a bit harder in the dark. But, you know, quite honestly, it really wasn't a problem until about the 17th hole yesterday. Then, you know, then it got a little dark, but I, at that point, I really don't think it affected Roy McIlroy that much. I'm surprised. I'm not surprised. Uh, sure, when you're golfing, someone will say, oh, yeah, the ball's there. But it does seem that th- since everything's illegal in golf for a spectator or a commentator <laughs> to tell you where the ball is, I can't believe they allow that. Well, I, I don't know if you guys were watching Saturday, but David Faraday, actually, uh, Jason Day on the second hole, hit a ball across this little this little creek that they call Floyd's Fork. David Faraday took off his shoes, went across the creek, and found the ball. Now, there's a five-minute limit for fighting the ball, so if he hadn't done that, you know, it's likely Jason Day would have had to take a penalty and then hit from the, you know, the opposite side of the hazard. But he was able to do it, and he, he saved par on the hole. And apparently on Twitter, David Faraday was saying that he just got annihilated by, by Northern Irish people who thought he was helping Jason Day at the expense of Rory McIlroy. So that was kind of funny. So I have two criticisms of CBS's coverage. I don't know if you saw it at all. Yesterday, Shane. First of all, they kept, we were talking about the low light conditions. They kept saying, our cameras are wildly misrepresenting what you're seeing out there. This is a a totally inaccurate view of what's going on. And then they're actually playing volleyball. (laughs) No, I mean, it took them about 30 minutes. Like it took them until maybe right before the last putt of McElroy's to show, like, okay, this is like actually a realistic view of how dark it is because they had opened up the irises on their cameras or whatever. And you certainly want to show, you know, you want it to be visible to people at home, but it was just absurd that they kept talking about how wrong the picture we were saying, and they couldn't just intersperse, like, (laughs) you know, show it side by side or something. The other thing that I noticed was when players were doing well, and I think this might be just something that generally happens in golf commentary, they commented on the guy's demeanor as if it was the reason that they were playing well. So when Fowler was in the lead, they're like, he's showing absolutely no emotion out there. That means he's so calm, and that's why he's Mm -hmm. doing great. And then when McElroy makes that great eagle a 10 and starts fist pumping, they're like, he's so excited, and that's why he's great, because he's showing that fire. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I totally agree. One thing I will say, and they always say that about the darkness, but I was on the course uh, all day, so I didn't get to see any of the coverage, but 
when we came off the course, we saw a shot on a TV um, showing Rory McIlroy with the trophy. And it really is unbelievable how incorrect it is. So even though I'm sure it's annoying to, with repetition to hear that over and over again, it's like crazy how dark it was and how light they make it look on television. Yeah, and to the second part, I guess it's, it's one of those things where golf is such... There's so much time between shots. There's so much time for tension to mount. And, you know, if you add it up, it would total what? Maybe, you know, a minute of, <laughs> of actual coverage. And, and the golf round lasts about five hours. So it just gives itself this kind of psychological mind reading. And, you know, it, it's almost inevitable. I catch myself doing it. And I'm sure if I was an announcer, I would probably be this annoying, like, over-analytical kind of person. But it does. It's like you look for their demeanor. Uh, you look for how it changes, uh, especially with, you know, with Phil and Ricky, they they just lit up the course for the first 11 holes, and then, you know, for the last seven, they, they just didn't do it, and it, it just makes you think, all right, what changed? And, yeah, I guess... I well, guess those holes were harder. <laughs> that changed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally, totally. And, I, yeah, I just think it, it lends itself to mind reading sometimes, and you're right, that can be that can be obnoxious, and it can be totally wrong as well. Well, I want to talk about, you know, Phil and Ricky. It's an interesting pairing. Phil has, of course, won majors, but he's associated with coming in second a lot, especially at the U.S. Open. And Fowler has had these great finishes, but hasn't got over the hump. How do you judge when a golfer is great, but there's just going to be, A, a distribution of finishes, so it's random chance if you're first or second, a stroke here or there. Plus, it's not as if, I mean, Fowler would have won a couple tournaments, but McElroy was awesome, right? So when do you judge if a golfer is having trouble, quote, getting over the hump, or if the process is totally right, don't change it, but for a couple of breaks here or there or other performers being amazing, he would have won, and so don't worry about it. Yeah, it's interesting with Fowler because I think coming into this year, there was uh, he's only won one tournament still uh, in his career, and there's that, there's that sort of lingering thing of, you know, is he just sort of a walking advertisement for, for Puma? Is he just a brand? And, you know, I think the great thing about this year for him is that he put that to rest because he's been excellent. Now, with him, I wouldn't worry too much because, you know, as you, as you were sort of getting at, the first three majors, he did finish top five, but he was never really in contention. The Masters, he kind of backdoored his way into the, into the top five. U.S. Open, he was with Martin Keimer, who was winning by a bunch. And then the British, of course, Rory had a huge lead going into the last day. So this was the first time he ever had a lead on a Sunday in the, in the final round of a major. It was the first time he was really in contention, and he's still a young guy. So I think for him, it's just trust the process. He's doing great, and just keep sort of going along with it because it's going to happen. And yeah, yeah, with Phil, and, and I think this kind of gets at what you're asking is, you know, what's the difference, I guess, between a Rory McIlroy and a Phil Mickelson or a Tiger Woods and a Phil Mickelson? And maybe it's the way they react to, to pressure. Maybe it's, you know, Phil Mickelson's always been a crazy risk taker when the pressure's high. And, and you could argue is that, you know, is he a gambler or is, it, or is it a weird kind of, you know, projection of some kind of fear or something like that? But, yeah, with some guys, I just think you have to understand. Jim Furyk's another one this year that, for whatever reason, they're not great winners, but they're good enough at golf that they're going to win sometimes. What do you make of all the attention and um, plaudits, pretty much, given to Ricky Fowler doing things like toning down his outfits, not as much orange, more muted colors? My take on that is nonsense, unless Ricky Fowler psychologically believes it's not nonsense. Oh, like, yeah, like, does it represent actual maturity? Is that, is that what you mean? Um, That's what they're saying about him. Yeah, you know, it's all, the thing is, Ricky Fowler, I mean, 
he came out with like I don't know if you want to say like a skate punk image or something. Like he's always been incredibly mature. The the idea of him being just some like crazy young kid who who takes crazy risks it, it's so wrong and it makes him look cool, which is exactly what they want. They want people on the course, both adults and children, dressing up like Ricky Fowler. They want him to be a brand, uh, you know, an icon and things like that. And it's worked, but Ricky Fowler has always been, like, incredibly mature, incredibly responsible, despite his clothes and hair. And so this idea that, you know, his, his clothes are more muted now, it's just, it's just Puma or, or, and, you know, doing what they're doing to create another, like, step in the, in the image of Ricky Fowler. It has nothing to do with Ricky Fowler as a person. That's, that's my opinion. All right, we've talked about the guy who finished in the top five of a bunch of majors. Um, let's talk about McElroy, who has won four of them now. Can you explain to us what makes him great and how his greatness maybe differs from that or of Tiger Woods or any other great players? Like, what are the kind of unique things about McElroy's game? He's hitting the ball so far off the tee, and he's hitting it straight. That's the simplest way to put it. It's just that he, he outdrives... Yeah, he was out driving Bubba Watson when they played together on Thursday and Friday, which is really incredible to me. And not by much, but I mean, Bubba's one of the best drivers in the game, so it just shows where where his skill off the tee is. Uh, but, you know, everything else is good, too. His, his putting is amazing. His approaches are amazing. There's really not a weak point of his game. But then the question is, right, why is he, you know, he's just as young as Ricky Fowler, pretty much. Why is he closing golf tournaments and these guys aren't? And I just think it's down to something... Yeah, some kind of like total self-assurance. There, there was a moment yesterday that I found kind of interesting on the 6T where uh, there was a little bit of traffic up ahead. So you had this unique situation where Phil Mickelson and Ricky Fowler uh, were on the tee waiting to hit, but then Rory and, and Brent Wiesberger, his partner, had finished the fifth hole, and they, they came up to the tee, and, and so they were meeting, which doesn't happen a lot in golf. And Wiesberger went up and said hi to Phil Mickelson, and they chatted, and, and Phil and Ricky were chatting and everything like that. Rory just sat down, and he's friendly with all these guys, but he just sat down by the water cooler on a bench and stared straight ahead, and he never said hello to any of them. And you could tell it kind of made them uncomfortable, and I don't think he was doing it on purpose, but he just sat there staring ahead without a, a hint of self-consciousness, or, or that he didn't feel the need to make conversation. He didn't feel the need to do anything but what he was doing, and everyone kind of reacted to him, you know, it was just a, a weird thing where you looked at him and said, this guy is totally in control of this situation without really trying, and everybody's reacting to him. And, I, you know, I don't know if that means anything or if I'm just overanalyzing the hell out of it. But demeanor. Moment where, great demeanor. <laughs> yeah, just great demeanor and, and just being in control, being the alpha dog in a situation with a lot of other alpha dogs, you know? So I was like, there's a total lack of fear there, and he was struggling at that point, but still made it seem like, you know, we we're going to hear from him again. This tournament is, is not close to over. Well, maybe we can end up by asking um, sort of the premise of your book, I guess, is that there's... How do you defuzz Zeller? Yeah, well, in the (laughs) German edition, definitely. The premise is that there's this new generation coming up post-Tiger Woods. But Tiger Woods, even with injured back, missing the cut, still is the dominant personality. I'm still following the Golf Channel Tiger Tracker. I still um, Mm -hmm. am more interested in him and what he's doing than even Rory McIlroy is... They're going to be a post-Tiger universe where golf still commands that level of interest, even if Rory McIlroy is great and Ricky Fowler is great. The title of the book sort of is like a little bit about this problem that the PGA Tour has, where they built 
golf around Tiger Woods, and it was really good for them. They they got increased TV ratings, and they you know increased prizes for tournaments, better advertisements, et cetera, et cetera. But what happens when the Tiger bubble bursts? <laughs> Who's there to replace them? And then, like you said, you know, there's you know you, you don't even care. And I think the average golf fan would agree with you. You you care more even in comparison to Rory McIlroy. I think golf's going to be totally fine. Is my answer. I do think you're going to see lower TV ratings. You already do see that. I don't have the numbers on yesterday yet, but I'm sure it's they're going to even how great it was. They're going to say it was lower than the last time Tiger was in contention or whatever. But you know, golf has always been a niche sport, and Tiger made it briefly more popular than it's ever been. But it, you know, it survived before Tiger. It's going to survive after him. It may be smaller than ever before, but it's not on the verge of death or anything. I would say it's a sport also that's going to benefit from from having icons, and I think we have one coming up at Rory, which is good because for a while when he was struggling. You thought, oh my God, what's going to happen to the sport? Are you going to have four different major winners every year? You know, is nobody going to tune in? Is nobody going to play anymore? And uh, I don't think that's going to happen. I think we do have some interesting young guys. But yeah, you know, the Tiger bubble is about to burst, and and that's going to have consequences for sure. All right, Shane Ryan writes about golf and other stuff for Grandland, and he's the author of the upcoming book, Slaying the Tiger, aka Defuzzing the Zeller, aka Slipping Mickelson the Mickey. <laughs> Shane, <Yeah>. thank you. <laughs> I, for... just, I just I just was in touch with my publisher. We're going with defuzzing the seller. We're, we're changing. Uh, uh, falling out of Davis the... Love the Third. <laughs> <laughs> another Hating another Davis hang up Love. and listen book titling success story. Uh, Shane, <laughs> thank you for being with us. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. For our final topic, we're going to talk about a week that seems like a turning point in the history of college sports. First, on Thursday, the NCAA Board of Directors voted to give a measure of autonomy to teams from the five richest conferences, every school in the ACC, Big 12, Big 10, SEC, and Pac-12, plus Notre Dame. If you add all those numbers together, and keep in mind that none of those conferences have the numbers of schools that the numbers would suggest, then you get 65 programs. They'll be able to vote amongst themselves to come up with rules that would govern all of college sports it could lead to a host of changes, giving scholarship athletes small payments to cover the full cost of attendance, guaranteeing four-year scholarships rather than renewing them year to year. This was huge news. Then on Friday, even bigger news potentially, Judge Claudia Wilkin ruled for the plaintiffs in the Ed O'Bannon case, saying that the NCA violated antitrust laws by barring college athletes from selling the rights to their names and likenesses. Joining us to talk through the implications of all this is the New York Times' college sports reporter, Mark Tracy. Hello, Mark. Hello. Um, so in both of these cases, Mark, mm-hmm. the restructuring and the O'Bannon case, there's a huge difference between what's actually spelled out and what people are saying that these changes could portend. So let's start with the restructuring part. And what's strange there to me is that it's not that these 65 teams get to play by different rules. It's that they get to actually write the rules that everyone has to play by. Well, it's not necessarily the rules everyone has to play by. I mean, if they elect to raise the amount uh, from the scholarship to the full cost of attendance, then no other school outside the 65 necessarily has to do that. They can. They can elect to, and a conference can elect to. I think for an individual school to, for Boise State to, for example, I think the entire Mountain West would either have to do it or would have to give Boise State permission. At the same time, I mean, that's going to create, if you want to compete with those schools, and especially in, you know, sports, really sports other than football, and to a lesser extent basketball, you know, lots of schools outside the 65 do compete with these 65, then there's going to be huge pressure to enact whatever reforms they enact for themselves. 
But the reforms will sort of, uh, one way of looking at it will be anti-reforms. I mean, the reforms, except for the uh, scholarship component, won't be to more fairness necessarily. There might be things that reformers want, like they, if the schools vote to allow parents to come to the Final Four in basketball, that's fine. But then you have the specter of... Duke playing Butler in the finals and the Duke kids can bring their parents for free and the Butler kids can't, that won't cause people to say, yeah, college basketball is getting fairer. Totally. And for example, Butler is another great example. I I would imagine Butler, a school like Butler, would seek to enact some of those reforms. But I mean, I think that's right. And I mean, the purpose of of autonomy was not or not only to uh, reform. I mean, if you ask some of them, they would say, you know, someone like Commissioner Michael Slive, he would say that it was entirely about benefiting student-athletes, but others have said that, no, it's also about entrenching advantages that these 65 schools already have. And, and what you just cited is a perfect example of that. If you're choosing between Baylor and Duke, and let's leave aside the rather pertinent fact that you probably aren't choosing between Baylor and Duke, but let's say you are, you know, the fact that Duke can pay for you to come and pay for your parents to come visit campus and then pay for your parents to come to the Final Four is certainly an argument in Duke's favor, I would think. Well, from my view, it's kind of a choose your unfairness. You say that this entrenches the advantages of the richer schools, but it's, in my view, it's just kind of acknowledging what the status quo is. And I don't think that I'm particularly offended by the fact that certain schools in college sports might have, you know, a better chance to win in football. You know, that's kind of how it is in all sports across the world that certain teams have certain advantages. I think the more important unfairness is the one involving student-athletes and payments. And I think that this does, and perhaps just because it was at the point of a bayonet, maybe we can transition here to the O'Bannon case, it does seem like they're trying to get out in front of potential legal rulings to say, okay, you know, what the schools could pay full cost of attendance, maybe we'll guarantee full scholarships. Those seem like important, you know, signs of micro progress here. And I just don't particularly care if it means that like Florida State is now going to be entrenched as an elite program. I think that's right. And again, with the caveat that you will have people say that no autonomy was entirely about benefiting our student athletes. I think that's right. I think they I think the the people who are in charge of top level college sports believe not necessarily incorrectly that they know better about how to reform these things. They also want to reform on their own terms and at their own timelines rather than have it be forced from without. And I absolutely think the autonomy structure was designed to get out ahead of, you know, whether it's the unionization drive, whether it's congressional hearings, or whether it's various lawsuits, most prominent of which so far has been the O'Bannon case, which, lo and behold, came out literally the day after autonomy was passed. Well, of course, the autonomy thing, that's more evolution than revolution because we have to keep the entrenched business interests entrenched. They won't even be able to see the world in a revolutionary way. But what do you think of Claudia Wilkins' ruling? I think it might be potentially revolutionary, but it seems that her underlying logic was uh, shot across the bow and blowing up arguments, but her actual prescriptions were pretty tepid. Right. Well, you read the 99-page ruling, and actually, believe it or not, I have, And you see her demolish, according to her, basically the justifications that the NCAA offered for amateurism at the trial. There was a trial, there was a three-week trial this summer in front of her. It was not a jury trial. It was in Oakland, California, in federal court. 
and the NCAA offered defenses of amateurism and reasons why amateurism didn't violate antitrust law. And again, I, I want to speak too expertly. I'm not a lawyer, but my understanding is, you know, to defend yourself from antitrust law, you don't literally need to say, oh, we're not acting in a antitrust fashion. You need to provide justifications for why you're doing that, you know, good justifications, and you, and you can do that. Why well, it's the least restrictive way right, to... Exactly. But she said, you know, basically in every instance that they weren't true. But then she kind of came back a little towards the end and said, well, no, paying players won't mess with what you guys are trying to do. But maybe if you paid them too much, it would. Mm -hmm. Um, No, paying players won't affect their educations. But maybe if you pay them too much, yes, it would. And so what you're left with is this injunction And, you know, uh, from talking to lawyers uh, throughout Friday and over the weekend, I've learned very carefully to say the injunction does not force any college to do anything. The injunction does not force the NCAA to do anything affirmatively. What it merely says, not merely, but what it says is that there are certain things the NCAA is currently doing that it may no longer do, chiefly holding down the costs of paying athletes. That said, it actually then provides for kind of an allowance, which it says that the NCAA may elect to cap compensation not compensation, but elect to cap, well, compensation, cap the grant and aid as well as additional payment, and the additional payment could be capped as low as $5,000 a year and can be paid via a trust fund that isn't accessible until the player's career is complete. Now, is that the kind of ruling where the Supreme Court says this is a limited ruling and then every other court interprets it and it turns out not to be a limited ruling? Is that $5,000 going to be expanded by other courts using the logic of her ruling? Maybe the amount of money will get bigger or is the amount of money pretty much set in stone because she said it? I mean, to tell you the truth, I don't entirely know. I do know that even the NCAA isn't entirely sure and is, in fact, seeking clarification. And and this very morning, filed a motion kind of seeking clarification with the court. I suspect that it's a prelude to them asking the court to reconsider the ruling, which they have to do before they can appeal the ruling, which they have announced they have planned to do. I will say that what lots of people are saying, the kind of talking point, is that what the ruling does by providing such a forthright argument against amateurism is that it opens the door to two important things. One is other lawsuits, including there's a lawsuit filed by Jeffrey Kessler, who's a prominent antitrust attorney. He was involved in the case that created free agency in the NFL 20 years ago, and his case asks for a lot more. His case essentially asks for the free market to be introduced uh, mm-hmm. to to the Big Five conferences, actually. It's interesting. His, his case only mentions his case, rather, is against the NCAA and those five conferences. And the other thing it does is it arguably puts the ball in Congress's court. And, and Judge Wilkin herself, we made this the kicker to our kind of lead-all in Saturday's paper, you know. Judge Wilkin herself kind of closes a ruling saying, like, this might not be the best venue for adjudicating this stuff. Like, this might be better for the practitioners. This might be better for Congress. And she mentions Congress. Congress has taken some interest. I was at a hearing at the Senate Commerce Committee last month where Mark Emmert testified. He had a lot of fairly skeptical senators, uh, Jay Rockefeller, Cory Booker, who played football at Stanford, actually. I think those two things are the things to watch out for. Because I think you're right. Practically speaking, the actual substance of the injunction, if it went forward, especially for the big five schools, would, I don't want to say it would change nothing. I mean, you know, if I'm an athlete, $5,000 more per year isn't nothing, just as autonomy wasn't nothing. You know, more money, more benefits isn't nothing. But right, it's kind of a continuation of the status quo in a way that's a little more favorable to athletes. But if it opens the door to much broader things, then obviously that's a much bigger deal. When she said might not be the best venue, I took that to mean possibly the Rose Bowl, Death Valley, (laughs) aircraft carrier off the coast of California. (laughs) Well, I'm not reading this objectively because I do believe strongly that athletes should be paid, but... 
Um, so keep that in mind. But in reading Wilkins' ruling, it seemed like her denunciations of, you know, NCA saying that amateurism is the storied important tradition. She very strongly came down against that idea. But the part about, oh, we should cap the money at $5,000, that didn't seem like it was coming from a place of as much authority or reason as you kind of alluded to. She was like, it's wrong to uh, you know prevent them from getting any money, but it might be wrong also to let them get too much money. I mean, it just didn't really seem like there was that you know, overwhelming of a rationale for that, in my view. Yeah, we quoted someone who said this basically shows that nobody wants to blow it up, and maybe nobody even wants to be the one who blows it up. I I certainly don't intend to psychoanalyze her from a distance or even from close up. I've never met her. We have a profile in today's paper by John Branch uh, of her, and she seems to be an incredibly kind of even-handed, empathetic judge who also was not a particularly huge uh, sports fan. Incidentally, a funny story is that Nora is one of the lead attorneys for the Obama, Michael Hausfeld. You know, there was a ESPN the magazine profile where he's like, I, I barely knew what football was until I, I, I took up this case. So I guess one could read it as sort of like, yeah, she sees this stuff is kind of weird and not making any sense, but she doesn't want to be the one who totally blows it up. I would note one other thing, which is that one of the proposed remedies from the plaintiffs and also from lots of reformers is switch to something kind of like the Olympic model. So Olympians, and again, I might have this later on, but Olympians don't get paid for participating in the Olympics, but they can sign endorsement deals so that and still be considered, quote, amateurs. So, I mean, you know, Michael Phelps says endorsement deals and such. And so people have said, why not let college athletes do this? You know, maybe the schools don't have to pay them, but they can, they can sign a sneaker deal. She explicitly said, no, that is not okay. We're not, I'm not letting that happen. So that is an interesting thing to take note of. So on this on this thing about her not being a fan, it is gratifying to see a ver- very smart, wise, yes. thoughtful person consider these arguments that we've heard for years right. and essentially say, wait a minute, you're saying a coach can get paid $9 million to make his kids wear sneakers. And so I got out of the full-time sports reporting business. But sometimes you have to just, you know, you report both sides of the story and here's the argument the NCAA is making. Was there a part of you that was gratified to see the worst arguments that you have had to dutifully quote in print over the years just blown up? Well, the good news is I've only been a uh, kind of straight-down-the-line uh, college sports reporter for a couple of months, so I haven't uh, necessarily had to do that. I would say that it was very interesting to see someone who clearly didn't grow up and clearly didn't have these arguments kind of like a nerd to them, confront them as new, like kind of as a tabula rasa, and say, mm-hmm. wait, wait a minute. That's certainly a very valuable perspective to have, and, and, it, it, and it kind of casts everything in a slightly new light. And, and, I mean, the opinion, yes, it's 99 pages. Yes, it's kind of written in this, the style that all judicial opinions need to be written in, where she's quoting from the Sherman Act and whatnot. But I, you know, frankly, it's available at the Times' website. It's available all over. If you Google it, you'll find it. I, I would encourage readers to kind of at least skim it, because you'll learn things, and you'll learn also what went on at the trial. You can find lots of the transcripts, but she, she rehashes the trial, as, as you would expect. And, and it is interesting to see her consider the arguments. And look, I mean, the NCAA made its arguments in earnest. The plaintiffs made their arguments in earnest, and she weighed them both. And uh, it's very clear, at least argument-wise, she very much found for the plaintiffs. Well, it's a very interesting, exciting time if you do follow college sports, because it does feel like anything could really happen in the next year. Um, You mentioned the Kessler case. People have kind of forgotten about the Northwestern 
unionization situation. I think because it's not going to happen, right? <laughs> well, we'll it's, the, it's, it's in the NLRB's uh, wheelhouse now. And also, that's assuming they voted to unionize. We actually that's don't what know I'm the saying. I think all the evidence is that the, that the players didn't vote to unionize. We'll see. We'll but anyway. See. But what is the next thing on our docket, Mark? The Kessler case has a hearing uh, before Wilkin fairly soon. There's some talk that that might get moved to jurisdiction. She's actually stepping down significantly uh, from her post just for, you know, I'm 60-something and want to want to take a step back, you know, something like that. So it might get moved to uh, venues, maybe to the Sugar Bowl. Then I would not be shocked to see Congress get more involved. Already there was a student-athlete caucus or something. I'm um, trying to learn more about it myself, you know, founded on Capitol Hill last week. I would not expect Jay Rockefeller, who's the senator who's in charge of the Senate Commerce Committee, to be done because it seemed when I saw him last last July, he basically was like, you know what, I'm just going to, because he wasn't getting the answers he wanted from student athletes and from everybody, he's like, you know what, I'm just going to have to subpoena a bunch of presidents from public universities and have them in here. And everyone, there was kind of like a gas, like an inaudible gasp in the room, like, oh, like you're going to like actually force these people to come talk. And I mean, certainly as someone covering this, that would be very exciting for me. I think those are the two things to look for, the Kessler case and then potentially Capitol Hill. Mark Tracy is a sports reporter for the New York Times. Mark, thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me. All right. Now it is time for After Balls. And I've been looking at the Valhalla Wikipedia page so I can make sure all of my Odin references are correct. Um, There are a lot of words on here, Mike, that I can't pronounce. What are the top words I can't pronounce? Um, Skinner. They're preparing to aid Odin during the events of Ragnarok. Yeah. There's the Golden Tree Glacier. Yeah. There's a stag called... There are letters in here that I don't recognize. Eichpernir. And there's a goat named something. And a tree called... Oh, my God. Laror? Oh, yeah. Laror. That's... I mean, that's... I think Ragnarok is the one that's probably... I'm botching the least. So we're going to go with uh, Ragnarok's. Did, and Do you know within Valhalla exists a smaller hall that Thor runs? It's like the VIP room of Valhalla. It's the champagne Bill's room. Bill <laughs> this, this stuff is really hard to pronounce, Norway. You're not really helping. read the one sentence from the uh, actual golf course website? Yeah, go for it. Valhalla, the great hall described in North mythology, where the souls of Vikings feasted and celebrated with their gods is now the namesake of a modern paradise for championship golf. That's great copy. Whoever wrote that needs a promotion immediately. So Ragnarok is a series of future events, according to Wikipedia, including a great battle foretold to ultimately result in the death of a number of major figures. That's kind of depressing. Anyway. No, no, not not if you consider they get to go to Valhalla. Uh, That's true. According to our uh, producer, Mike Volo, it's also the name of a popular John Hodgman special. There's a little yeah. podcast crossover there. All right, Mike, what is your Ragnarok? So uh, my good friend Lichman is always asking me interesting questions about baseball. Is and, he like uh, the house of Mike Pesca? I try to. I try to. I'm trying to establish him as such. <laughs> and uh, one of these queries, which was really actually not that interesting. I can't find a list of RBI leaders for the Yankees by year. And we, we worked on this together. But I came across on baseball reference, they list the top player of every team in franchise history. And so, you know, the Yankees this year, do you guess who their top player is this year? The top player in terms of RBIs? No, no. It's, I think it's war. I think it's one of their, yeah, war. Uh, Tanaka? Oh, the, yeah, I got hurt. It's Brett Gardner. So if you go back in the list, it's all the guys you'd think would be. Derek Jeter hasn't been their top player mostly. Going back, 
Cano, Cano, Sabathia. Cano, Jeter, Rodriguez, Rodriguez. Chinmin Wong, who knew that? Rodriguez, Rodriguez, Musina, Giambi. Stop him when it gets weird. Musina, Posada, Jeter, Jeter, Pettit, Pettit, Bernie Williams, Wade Boggs, Jimmy Key, Melito Perez, Steve Sachs, Roberto Kelly. <laughs> Wait, Steve Sachs, I'm supposed to had... stop you. I'm supposed to stop you. When do you change <laughs> your tone? Melito Perez was the Yankees' best player in 1992. Now, 1992 was not a great year for the Yankees. In fact, the Yankees had a losing record in 1992. It is the last year that they had a losing record, or the most recent year that they had a losing record. And Melito Perez, perhaps you know him as the 13-16 and 16 pitcher of that year, but he actually had an amazing year in such things as war, wins above replacement, ERA plus, just out of the park. So I went back for the last 30 years, and I researched how many players had roughly his number of innings. And he had 247 innings. So I said, all right, how many players had above 230 innings and had an ERA, a plus, which is a pretty good metric of above 130. And there's 112 pitchers. And it's like all the great seasons, right? All the great seasons of guys who pitched every game or maybe missed one game. You know, your Clemenses, your Randy Johnsons, your Kurt Schillings, Verlander's last couple seasons were up there. Then you have Melito Perez. He has the most losses there are a couple other guys with losing records, like Ben Sheets pitching for a pretty bad Milwaukee team when 12 of 14. But Molito Perez going 13 and 16 that year. No one even has 15 losses. Molito Perez has 16 losses. And I think the thing that's, that solidifies Molito Perez, born Molito Turpin Gross Perez, who knew that? The thing that solidifies Molito Perez as what the hell's this guy doing on the list is that he never even came close to having another season like that. I mean, they got him over from the White Sox. He had a pretty good year with the White Sox. His record was 8-7. and seven. That's pretty good. He had an ERA of 312. But in this, the greatest Yankee of 1992, Melito Perez, had a 2.87 ERA. This is 1992. Balls were flying out of the park in 1992. He had an ERA plus, like I said, of 136. He didn't miss a start. He pitched 247 innings. He had 218 strikeouts, but he could only manage those 13 wins against 16 losses. He pitched for three more years, was out of baseball by 1996, never even went on to have double-digit wins in a season again. Perhaps one could argue that the 247 innings killed the arm of Melito Perez, the 1988 sixth-place finisher of Rookie of the Year, and let me say it again, the greatest Yankee of 1992. I don't like the implicit criticism of Derek Jeter in this afterball. No. The captain? He was the most valuable Yankee five or six times. That's good, right? Especially when you got those other guys around you. Especially when you have the likes of Paul O'Neill, who will always be the most valuable Yankee every time he ever Actually, he, set Jeter, on Jeter only had it three times right. That got, got kind of stinks. Hey, Josh, hit me with your Ragnarok. I would be happy to. Uh, I was in New Orleans a couple weeks ago for a wedding. And as I always do, I went to my favorite fast food place, Bud's Broiler, to get two hot dogs with ketchup and cheese. Where is this afterball going? You're wondering. Well, I like it so far. Be patient. The hot dogs with ketchup and cheese are very important. Like most similar establishments, Bud's Broiler used to have a bunch of arcade games, but they gradually vanished as Miss Pac-Man and the like lost their luster, replaced by, in this instance, some video poker machines that were hidden tastefully behind a pair of saloon doors. But on this visit, I was heartened to see that an arcade game had returned to the hallowed halls 
of uh, Valhalla slash Bud's Broiler. The game was called Bags. And the premise was not that you control that dude from American Beauty who sees a plastic bag and talks about how much beauty there is in the world, although that would make for a great video game. I did not realize, but now I know, that bags is what some people call cornhole. These are the kind of people who pronounce the word bags, bags. Is that good? Is that a good Midwestern accent? No? Bags? <laughs> Pro- that, that one pronounce, do the side-by-side pronunciation. I ba- pronounce it bags, but they pronounce I it. I pronounce it bags. They pronounce it bags. Ah, okay. So anyway, after spending 50 cents to play bags, I was not any more convinced <laughs> that we need a video game that simulates tossing bean bags in the air. It is about as useful as a game that simulates thumb wrestling or that game where you try to slap someone's hands before they move them away. Um, slaps. Slaps, that we call it? Yeah. So, Or slaps. Slaps. So to toss the bag in bags, you move this giant trackball back and then forward which is exactly how you swing a golf club when you're playing Golden Tee, which makes sense because bags and Golden Tee are both made by a company called Incredible Technologies. So bags is actually part of what is known as the Target Toss Pro Series. It is a system. It is not just a cornhole game. It also includes Target Toss Pro Lawn Darts. That Lawn Darts game differs from bags in two important ways. First, it features Lawn Darts. Second, it includes a feature called Raw Talk. So according to the Target Toss Pro website, Raw Talk is uncensored, dart-by-dart adult commentary. It combines the fun of a simulated lawn darts experience with the joys of foul language into one arcade package. So (laughs) I scoured the internet for examples of this Raw Talk, and all I could find was a 36-second YouTube video that has 33 views, and maybe I am several of those views. We can play that clip now. Pop one up on the scoreboard. It's bullshit. Three! Let's have a look. Start in the third. It's fucking trash ball. So now you don't have to curse at the trackball yourself. There's an announcer on the game who hopefully chimes in to note that the trackball is a fucking trackball. You must admit that this is a pretty great concept, Mike. Well, especially better than when they originally marketed it as Tourette's darts. <laughs> but couldn't this have staved off the decline of arcade games? <laughs> fucking Cubert. Come on. It's a, it's a huge hit. <laughs> <laughs> They're invaders from space. Blast the fuckers! <laughs> All right, we love your feedback when we talk. I about also today. enjoy Donkey Fucking Kong. <laughs> Donkey Fucking Kong. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. Critique our Midwestern pronunciations. Send us more expletive-laden video games and golf book titles. Defucking the Zeller. No. <laughs> we should maybe cut that out. Oh, we'll leave it up to Mike Folo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He has good taste. He does. He's our producer. I'm reading this out of order, but he deserves a call out there. Please subscribe to Hang Up and Listen on iTunes. You can find us at iTunes.com slash Slate Podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan on Facebook, Facebook.com slash Hang Up and Listen. Our intern is Chris Laskowski. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Remember Zelma Beatty. Thanks for listening. Fucking trackball. Thank you. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.